Christmas 2023 has come and gone. And for many of us, the house feels a little emptier. There's no presents under the tree. There might be a few leftovers in the fridge. But we get into this, this, this slump, this, this mode of we've enjoyed having family come over for Christmas. But many of you can attest to this statement that it's even a greater joy when you see the lights leave the driveway. We all go through it. Now the house is kind of empty. And all this buildup to Christmas, this crescendo, has reached its climax, and it's over. We start getting back to normal, whatever that is. But for a lot of people, after Christmas is hard. And there are people who deal with something we call post-Christmas blues. Because it's not easy for them, because they've... they've Frantically gotten the house decorated, clean, bought presents, and everything's done, and they struggle. They struggle to what happens, and they get into this depression. We think about the Christmas narrative for just a moment. Think about what it was like for Mary and Joseph. Think about everything they have dealt with for the last number of weeks. We've led up to Christmas. We've talked about the coming of the Messiah. We've read in scripture and taught in Sunday school about what Mary and Joseph went through to get from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And we read the Christmas narrative, we very rarely talk about Joseph. Do you realize in scripture Joseph never says a word? He never talks. We see him in action, we see him do things, but he never speaks a word. Yet we know that God had a plan in using Joseph to be that earthly father for Jesus. And if you think about the Christmas narrative, we talk about Mary, we talk about the baby, we talk about the shepherds, we talk about the wise men. But we don't do a lot when it comes to Joseph. So this morning I want to talk about Joseph. But I want to talk about what happens after Christmas. For Mary and for Joseph. Because their life is fixing to be turned upside down. It was already been a struggle. Traveling from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Nine months pregnant. Get to Bethlehem. There's no room. We know the Christmas narrative. We know what takes place in scripture. But here's what I find interesting. If you turn over to Luke's gospel. Luke sums up 12 years from the time Jesus was born. So he turns 12. Luke sums it up in two verses. Over in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 39, it says this. So when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city, Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. That's all it says. That's all it says in Luke's gospel about what happened after the birth of Jesus. But this morning, I want to ask you to take your Bible turn to Matthew chapter 2. Because Matthew gives us a lot more detail than what took place after the wise men show up. After things start changing for Mary and for Joseph and for the baby. If you look with me at Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 13, it says this. 
Now when they had departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. The wise men have come, they have presented their gifts, they have left. They have gone home a different route. And everybody goes to bed. And Joseph has a dream. Now we don't know what time of day all the hoopla's ended with the wise men showing up. But scripture simply says that Joseph was sleeping. Now considering that Joseph was a little bit older than Mary, Joseph probably liked naps. So he's sleeping. And notice who shows up an angel. And an angel gives Joseph a specific message. He doesn't say, hey, hang around, everything's going to be perfect. No, according to scripture, he says, you need to get up right now. You need to take the child, take his mother, and you need to go to Egypt. Because if you stay here, your child is in danger. And we see that in the scripture verses. We see the angel telling him to flee and go to Egypt. Now, there are some things I want you to see as we work through verses 13 through the latter part of verse 23 this morning. The first thing is this. When it comes to Joseph, I want you to see Joseph's obedience this morning. Joseph is obedient to God and what God is commanding him to do. Look with me in verse 14. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. Notice what scripture says. It doesn't say that he waited till morning, had a good breakfast, and then packed the bags and left. Nowhere in scripture does it say, hey, Mary, I need to make sure everything is packed and going. we got to leave by about 10 a.m. Scripture says they left that night. There was no hesitation on the part of Joseph. Joseph gets up and he goes. But now think about what this meant for Mary and Joseph. They've already traveled from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Now, I'm, sh I'm thinking in Joseph's mind. Here's what Joseph is thinking. The baby's here. We've gotten through all this. Now we can head back home to Nazareth. But that was not part of God's plan. And we see why that's not part of God's plan. Because of what is taking place. Here they're thinking we're going to be here for a few days. Listen, I can promise you nowhere in Joseph's mind is he thinking we got to move, much less move to Egypt. But this is what God commands him to do. God commands him to move to Egypt. But here's the catch. Their family is back in Nazareth. There's no way to let the family know what's going on. Facebook wasn't around. There wasn't a bad cell phone either. And I can promise you the mail was slow. So think about Joseph and Mary for a second. There's no way to let her family know or his family know what's going on. There's no way to let them be aware of the fact that, hey, well, by the way, we're not coming home as quick as we thought we were. Because I can imagine Joseph telling the families, listen, we got to go to Bethlehem. we got to do the census. And we should be back in a, a reasonable time. Baby may arrive over there so we get to come back. With three instead of two, but we'll be back eventually. Nowhere in Joseph's plan, in Joseph's mind, was the thinking that we're going to move. Because think about it. They didn't bring a wagon when they went to Bethlehem. They didn't pack all their belongings. 
They didn't, Joseph didn't pack the house up, put it in a cart, and take it to Bethlehem. No, it was Mary and Joseph and a donkey and a few supplies and a couple of change of clothes. And that was it. Now, God has told him through a dream, you need to take the child and go. And there's no hesitation. That's the obedience we see with Joseph. Here's another thought. Joseph's a carpenter. What about my shop back in Nazareth? What about my business? What's going to happen if i got to go to Egypt? So I imagine all these things running through his mind. But again, look at what Scripture says. Notice what Scripture says. Go back to verse 13. The angel of the Lord simply says, Arise. He says, Arise, take the child and the mother and flee to Egypt. And notice the obedience in Joseph in verse 14. When he arose, he packed up and went. That's the obedience we see. There was no plan B in any of this. There was no option. There was no way of trying to figure out. Listen, Joseph simply obeyed. He obeyed and he trusted God and took him at his word. And God said, move, we're going to move. That's all Joseph needed. So why is Joseph obedient? I believe, number one, he has a relationship with God. But number two, God knew Joseph's heart. God knew his heart. God has known Joseph's heart from the beginning. Go back to the first time that Joseph had a dream. It was right before he was going to privately divorce his wife to be. And the angel said, don't divorce her. She's carrying the Savior of the world. And he takes her as his wife. So Joseph is not uncommon to hearing God's voice through dreams. But what I want you to see is his obedience. He obeys. He doesn't hesitate. For you and for me, do we have that kind of obedience when it comes to following God's will and plan for our life? Are we willing to be disobedient? To not overthink it. To not say, hey God, is there a plan B, C, D, or E? Because for Joseph, there was Joseph, there was none of that. Scripture simply says he arose and went. That's the obedience we see in Joseph because God knew his heart. God knew Joseph's heart, but he also knew that Joseph was sensitive to God's will. And that's what we see through his obedience. Now, as a parent, here's what I'm thinking. How's this going to work, God? We just got here. The baby's a few days old. How's this going to work, God? This leads to the second thought we see in this passage of Scripture. And it's this. Number two, God's provision. God's provision. God is never going to tell you to do something without having a plan for you to do it. Do you understand what I'm saying? God's never going to send you to go without preparing you to be ready. Providing you what you need to accomplish the task he has for you. The provisions that God provides, we see back in verse 11. And we overlook these provisions sometimes. We look at verse 11 of chapter 2 and we know this passage of scripture. And it's referring to the wise men. And it simply says, when they came into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. 
And they opened their treasures. They presented gifts to him of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, we already know from a perspective, those are really strange gifts for a baby. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, we understand the spiritual significance behind these three items. Gold is for a king. Frankincense would have been used by the priest. Myrrh is used in burial. But I just said that God provided. God gave them provisions. I can remember one of my very first classes in seminary was a Life of Christ class. And we were working through this section of scripture. And I can remember reading this. And this thought just jumped in my mind. God just told Joseph to pack up and go. And here's my thought. How are they going to pay for it? How are they going to afford it? And the professor in my class reminded me of what verse 11 says. They were presented gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You know how Joseph's going to survive with his family in a foreign land? Easy. Take the frankincense and take the myrrh and sell it. Keep the gold. Now they've got the money to travel. Because God had provided for them. These three gifts that we don't understand at the beginning now make sense. It's through these three gifts that Joseph is able to take his family, pack them on that donkey, and head to Egypt. Because God's already provided for them. God has already provided for them financially and didn't even realize it. Because of those three gifts. Notice what God doesn't say. God never says, hey, pack your bags, go to Egypt, and oh, by the way, good luck. Hope you make it. Hope you figure out what, figure out what to do when you get there. God always provides. God will always provide. Especially for those who are walking with him. Now, we may not understand how that's going to work. We may not understand what that looks like until later. Because I can only imagine Joseph when he sees these why these kings, these wise men show up with these gifts. And again, we don't hear from Joseph. We hear we see Mary and pondering these things. We don't ever hear from Joseph. Dads, I don't know about you, but I'm standing in the back corner of Army Joseph going, what am I gonna do with that much frankincense and myrrh? Where am I gonna put it? And God says, You don't need to put it anywhere. That's going to help you get to Egypt. That's the provisions we see in these verses. They're going to have enough money to live in Egypt based on those gifts. Because God has provided for them. And the provision came through the least likely of sources. Wise men from the east. But remember something and don't lose sight of this. Why did the wise men show up in the first place? Go back to verse 11. Why did the wise men show up in the first place? Because they had a desire to do what? Look at verse 11 again. When they came to the house, they saw the young child, Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped. They told Herod, hey, there's a new king in town. And we've come to worship him. But notice what scripture never says. It never says they get to the house and say, hey, Mary, do you know, by the way, this, your child is the next king? 
Do you realize what he's going to be according to what we understand? We don't see that anywhere in Scripture. What we see is these men. And we use three because of three gifts. But I can pretty sure think it was a caravan. It wasn't just three guys on three camels showing up in the middle of the night. It's a, it's a, it's a parade. And it simply says they found the child. They fell down and they worshipped. Then they presented their gifts. They didn't give the gifts first in worship. They worshipped first. And they presented those gifts. Because God is providing for them. Now so far in the narrative, everything sounds great. Joseph has a plan now. Joseph is being obedient to God. He has a plan. I can take the frankincense. I can take the myrrh. I can turn that into currency. And we can use that in Egypt. And I would love to say that this is the best part of this passage. And we're done. And we get to go home and sing Kumbaya. But we have to continue as Paul Harvey would say. And I know some of you have no idea who Paul Harvey is. So I'm old. We've got to get to the rest of the story. Because not only do we see Joseph's obedience, not only do we see God's provision, but I need to show you somebody else in the narrative. And I need to show you Herod's anger. Because there's another part to the puzzle. We've already been told about this piece of the puzzle back in verse 13. Because the angel told Joseph, hey, you need to go because Herod wants to harm your child. So we know Herod is angry. How do we know he's angry? Well, we just saw it in verse 13. But I want you to see something. Before we go further, and I kind of overlooked this, and that's my fault. Look at verse 15 for a second. Looking at this obedience and why we're going to Egypt in the first place. Verse 15. So he arose in verse 14. We're going to go 14 to 15 to get a running start. And when he arose, he put the young child, his mother, by night, and departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord to the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I will call my son. So we know why he's going. We know why we're packing the family and we're heading out of town. But I want you to see Herod's anger. Look at verse 16. When Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth to put to death all male children who were in Bethlehem and in all the districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, Lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. I'll explain verse 18 in a second. But let's talk about Herod for just a moment. Because we tend to leave this part out of the Christmas narrative. We talk about Mary, we talk about Joseph, we talk about the baby. But we forget that now Mary and Joseph and the baby are running for their lives. They are literally running for their lives because there is a man in Jerusalem who wants to kill this child. And to make matters worse, he has decided, since I don't know specifically, because I'm not listening to people who are smarter than me, who have already told me where the child was born. I'm just going to wipe out all male children two years and younger. 
And he's basing that on the determination of what the wise men said when they saw the star. Because if you recall, when the wise men show up back in verse 11, Scripture says when they came to the house and found the child. So we're not looking at a baby anymore. We're looking at a probably a, a one, one and a half, possibly even close to a two-year-old by this point. Potentially. Well, we got to get up and go. But now Herod is so mad. And let me tell you a little bit about Herod. Herod was a bad dude. That's the best way I can put it. And in researching and learning about Herod, this is a man who was mean. This was a man who was vicious. And a man that history talks a lot about. Caesar Augustus was quoted as saying, it would be better to be King Herod's pig than his son. Pigs were protected by law. Herod's family wasn't. Let me tell you about Herod real quick. Herod killed two of his own sons. He had them strangled. He then decided to kill one of his ten wives, the one that was his favorite, because he thought she had been unfaithful to him and she wasn't. He killed his 18-year-old brother-in-law because the Jews liked him better than Herod. He killed his wife's grandfather. He killed her 80-year-old uncle who once had saved Herod's life. He killed his own uncle and even his own mother-in-law. So if he's willing to kill all these people, what are a few babies? What are a few children to Herod? But the slaughter of innocent children in Bethlehem was a fulfillment of prophecy. Again, go back to verse 18. This is a fulfillment of prophecy that this would take place. Now, there are two. There's a location and a person mentioned in verse 18. And I want you to explain. I want to explain what's happening here. It says in verse 18, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Let me explain the significance behind Rachel and Ramah. On the map behind me, you see a, you see a pinpoint, that's Ramah. You see Jerusalem in the red circle, you see Bethlehem at the bottom. The speculation is that we know give or take, that Bethlehem is about five miles south of Jerusalem. Ramah is five miles north of Jerusalem. So the thinking is, by historians, that Jerusalem being the center point, Herod just drew a big circle with Ramah and Bethlehem being the north and south point. And he says, everything in this circle Every male child two years and younger within this perimeter needs to be killed. That explains the passage here. That explains verse 18 in his quotation of Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 5. This is how angry Herod is. Herod is so angry that he's angry. Now notice why he's angry. You have to go back to verse 16. Why is he mad? Because he was deceived by the wise men. Because remember he told the wise men, hey, you go find the child and you go worship him and you come back and tell me where he is. 
But we already know that in verse 12, the wise men were told to go home a different direction in a dream and not go back to Herod. Now Herod is furious, and we see Herod's actions. We see the kind of man he is. He's willing to kill his own family members. So what are a handful of two years and younger male babies to him? They're nothing. That's the anger we see in a man. You know why he's angry? Because he feels his position is threatened. Because of what the wise men said to him. And when the wise men showed him in Jerusalem, hey, king, there's a new guy in town. You heard about the new king. So Herod's already perturbed. But now he's angry. We see this anger unfold. But we don't stop here. Because we've moved in this, and we've already seen the obedience of Joseph. We've seen the provision of God. We've seen Herod's anger. But here's the big one I want you to see. I want you to see this, and it's simply this. I want you to see God's plan. God has a plan. In all of this, there's a plan. There is always a plan. God doesn't do anything by chance. God doesn't get up and say, you know what, I wonder if this will work. Maybe I'll try this. God always has a plan. We see the plan in verse 15. Look at the plan. And was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, out of Egypt I will call my son. Here's an interesting fact. Here's an interesting thought. Think about the history of Egypt for just a second when it comes to the Jews. Because there was a time in history when it was not a good thing to be a Jew living in Egypt. We go back to Exodus. We go back to the time of Moses. We know the hardship that they experienced in Egypt. We know the struggles they experienced in Egypt and how God called Moses to free God's people. But here's the cool thing. Mary and Joseph are going back to Egypt, but they're not going to be alone. Because there are other Jews back in Egypt who are going to be there to encourage them. There are others there who are going to be there to help them. Because at the time, Egypt is under Roman rule. And Herod didn't have any power there. So there is a multitude of Jews who have found safety in Egypt away from King Herod. So in this part of being God's plan... There is now, in Joseph's day, a Jewish settlement in Egypt. So Joseph and Mary are not going to go to a foreign land and be alone. There are others who are there who are going to be there to encourage them and help them there in this season, in this time of transition. In this settlement, there is a temple. In the settlement, settlement, settlement there is a synagogue where they can go in public and worship as Jews. Remember... 1,500 years ago, they couldn't do that. But now it's taking place. And here's the interesting thought here. And it's in your outline. The land that once enslaved the Jews, God used to now protect the Jews. The land where they were enslaved was now going to protect his son and his parents and others who are there. Who are far away from Herod and his oppression. 
But I want you to see what takes place because remember, I told you at the beginning, we're looking over the course of a number of years, about 12 years from the birth to when he finally gets out of town and goes back home to Nazareth. Because now I want you to see what happens. Notice this running narrative that takes place starting in verse 19. Verse 19 says, Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. Herod is finally dead. And now Mary and Joseph can come back home. But remember how crazy Herod was? Let me remind you of this. Before his death, Herod's death was very painful. He had a disease. And he knew he was about to die. So listen to what Herod did. Herod had all of Jewish nobility taken to a specific location. And Herod gave the following order. Herod told his soldiers, when I die, I know they're not going to mourn me. I want you to slaughter them. This nobility, these Jewish nobles. That was his final command. But when Herod finally died, the soldiers didn't carry out the command. They didn't carry out his last orders. But that's how corrupt and how angry Herod is. But now Herod is dead. And this should be rejoicing. And it should be rejoicing for Israel because Herod is no longer with them. No longer causing issues. No longer putting a burden upon God's people. And so God tells, again, Joseph in a dream, pack up, you're getting out of Egypt. Go back to Israel. Go back to where your home is. And we see him following. We see him doing what God has called him to do. And again, notice this. Verse 20, arise and go. Verse 21, he packs up and leaves. There's no hesitation. Again, it goes back to Joseph's obedience. He doesn't look at Mary and say, hey, I had another dream last night. we got to pack up and move again. So we'll start about 3.30 tomorrow, packing up stuff, and we'll get out of town. No, he immediately went. Scripture says in verse 21, they arose and took and they went to the land of Israel. Packed up everything they had and got out. But it doesn't stop here. Because God is going to continue to protect this child and his parents. And notice the fulfillment of scripture. You go back to the end of verse 15 and it says, out of Egypt I will call my son. Now his son is coming out of Egypt, going back to his home. But it doesn't stop there. Because we see the dream. He gets up and he goes. Now they started to go back towards Bethlehem, back to Judah. But there's an issue. Look at verse 22. But when they heard Archelaus was reigning over Judah instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there and being warned by God in a dream. There's those dreams again. 
he turned aside into the region of Galilee. He's going back to Bethlehem towards that region and he realizes that he doesn't need to go there because now things are even worse because Herod is dead. But now his son is in control and the history books tell us that his son was worse than his father. So I don't blame Joseph in thinking this. Why am I going to go back to another crazy person? Why am I going to go back and live in a region that is run by a madman? So scripture says and look what he does. He says, being afraid in the latter part of verse 22 and being warned by God to dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. And then we get to verse 23. And he came and dwelt in the city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. The fulfillment of scripture taking place. Because in this passage of scripture, we see the fulfillment of prophecy. Now remember, Nazareth is a small town. Nazareth is famous for not being famous. There's nothing cool in Nazareth. Listen, no one had ever heard, really heard of Nazareth. It's not even mentioned in the Old Testament. That's how insignificant it is. It's insignificant in the eyes of others. But not far from Nazareth, there was a major roadway that ran north and south and east and west. And even though it was insignificant, it still was important. Remember, we read later over in John chapter 1 verse 46, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That was the thinking of the people. There's nothing special about Nazareth. Listen, Nazareth is about as special as Reedsville, Cobb County, and Powell. The only ones who know about Reedsville, Cobbtown, and Collin are those who live there, even in Jordan. The world sees it as insignificant. We see it as important. Because it's in Nazareth this child is going to be raised. It's in Nazareth this child is going to grow in wisdom and stature. It's in Nazareth where he is going to start listening and following and doing God's will. We've run this whole gamut to get to Nazareth. Joseph being obedient. Joseph trusting God and providing. Joseph knowing the dangers of Herod. Joseph knowing that God had a plan, even though he didn't understand it. Didn't have any preview to what was coming next. Yet he saw God working in and through all of these things. To the point that Jesus would be raised in this town that the world thinks of as insignificant. Yet we know what comes out of Nazareth. Our Savior comes out of Nazareth. The one who would die for our sins comes out of Nazareth. So in reading this part of the after Christmas narrative. What do we do with this? What do we do with these verses? They're in scripture for a reason. What do we take it? How do we apply it? What do we learn from this? I think there's three things quickly we learn. Number one, the safest place to be is where God leads you. The safest place for you and me to be is where God leads us. Let me explain. The wise men followed a star and were led to the Christ child. The wise men followed God's instructions in a dream and escaped 
Herod's wrath. Joseph followed the angel's instructions in a dream and escaped to Egypt. Joseph then followed God's instructions in a dream and escaped the wrath of Archelaus. The safest place, listen to me church, the safest place that you will ever be is in the center of God's will. That is the safest place you will ever be. The problem is, is when we step out of God's will. We start trying to do things on our own. We start trying to plan our own path and try to order our own steps. Instead of letting God lead us and direct us, we try to do our own thing. The danger there is when I step outside of God's will, I make it all about me. About my wants, my desires, my wishes. Which there may not necessarily be anything wrong with any of those things. But I'm no longer being obedient to God. I'm no longer trusting God's plan. I'm doing things on my own. Yet we have just seen in the life of a man who never speaks a word in Scripture. We've seen that for Joseph, along with Mary, and with Jesus, the safest place for them to be was in the center of God's when we step out, we get in trouble. So are you walking in the center of God's will? Are you allowing God to lead your path, to direct you and guide you? Are you following the path he has for you? Which is way better than any path you can pick on your own. So that's the first takeaway I believe from these verses. Is that the safest place to be is where God leads you. Number two. A Christian isn't exempt from troubles. Think about all the suffering the first Christmas brought. Think about the suffering. The wise men are now running for their lives because Herod is going to want to kill them for giving the information. Mary and Joseph are running for their lives trying to get out of Israel into Egypt. There were a multitude of innocent babies being slaughtered. All this is happening at the first Christmas. It's about a baby, but it's not any baby. It's God's child. It's God's son who is dealing with these things. So here's the thought. Why didn't God just get rid of Herod? Why didn't he just go, okay, Herod's in the way. Snap my finger. Get him out. Man, that has solved a whole lot of problems. Let's take it a step further. Because we know who's causing the issues. We know the devil's behind everything. Why doesn't God just get rid of the devil? Here's the answer. He will. Eventually, God's going to get rid of the devil. It's on his time and it's part of his plan. Because we know that Satan is behind Herod's working. We know Satan is behind all the obstacles that Joseph and Mary have been dealing with. But for King Herod, he dies in exile. So Herod eventually gets what's coming to him. Because he's not in the center of God's will. But there's nothing in scripture that says you and I need to have it easy. There's nothing in the Christmas narrative that was easy. None of it. 
You got Mary who's nine months pregnant riding a donkey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. There's no flat ground in Israel. It's all hills and valleys. And I'll be honest with you, I've never ridden on a donkey, but I don't think I'm very comfortable. And I have no idea what it's like to be nine months pregnant, but I can only imagine how much worse that is. There was nothing easy about this first Christmas. Nothing. Yet God worked in all of it. You're going to go to Bethlehem. You're going to get counted in the census. Oh, by the way, you're having your child while you get there. Oh, by the way, you're going to have him in a barn and put him in a feeding trough. Oh, by the way, in a couple of years, you're going to be visited by these wives that are going to bring some really great gifts. And oh, by the way, that night, your husband's going to get a dream and says, hey, you've got to get out of town. And run for your life because someone wants to kill your child. And oh, by the way, you're going to hang out a few years in Egypt. But there'll be people, other Jews, to help encourage you. Oh, by the way, you can finally go back home. But oh, just for fun, Herod's son's now in charge. There's nothing easy about any of this. There is nowhere in this passage of scripture where Mary and Joseph get to stand in the corner saying, Kumbaya, my Lord. Kumbaya. No, none of that's happening. But again, we see the faithfulness of Joseph. We see the obedience of Joseph. Joseph knew that none of this was going to be easy. I think he knew the challenges were coming before him. But he trusted God in and through all of these issues. So the best place to be and the safest place to be is where God leads you. A Christian isn't exempt from troubles. And here's number three. And this is one, this is one we always need to remember. God is in charge. When everything is said and done, God is in charge. Listen, you will feel safe. You will feel secure living in God's will. But that's not to say bad things won't happen. But God is still in charge. When life throws you a curveball, God is still in charge. When things don't go the way you thought they should be going, God is still in charge. When the doctor says, hey, I need to talk to you, I don't like some of your blood work, God is still in charge. When the boss calls you to office and says, hey, we've got to downsize, God is still in charge. We tend to forget that sometimes. We look at Mary, we look at Joseph, we know that God was with them every step of the way. But you've got to imagine there are moments where Joseph and Mary are experiencing post-Christmas blues. They had their baby in Bethlehem, and they didn't live happily ever after. The dream of going back to Nazareth was going to take a while, postponed for a few years. Life is not going as it was planned or expected. This is not what we planned, God. This was not part of the plan. This morning, this morning, you might be experiencing some post-Christmas blues. Because things are not going the way that you thought they should. Or the way you thought they would. Listen, maybe your Christmas wasn't what you expected this year. And now that Christmas is done and gone and the excitement has passed, your balloon has popped. And you're thinking, what's next? Here's what's next. 
God is still in charge. God is still in control. God didn't leave Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem. God didn't say, hey, good luck with the baby. I'll see you in a couple of years. God is still in charge. God didn't leave them in Egypt. God didn't say, hey, tough it out in a foreign land. God is still on the throne. And God is still in charge. But do you realize that this morning? Every head bowed and every eye closed. This morning, I don't know if you had a wonderful, awesome Christmas. I don't know if you struggled during Christmas. I don't know if you're experiencing post-Christmas blues this morning. Because you've had all the hoopla, all the crescendo, and now it's done. And you're thinking, what now, God? Now what do I do? Because now I have to go back to life. Whatever normal looks like for me. And for some this morning it's a struggle. Because you're dealing with some things. You're dealing with some things that are causing hurt in your life. You're dealing with some things that are causing you to doubt your relationship with God. To doubt your relationship with your spouse, with your family. Yet in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the struggle, we have a Savior who calls us, not with a loud, booming voice, but He calls us simply softly, and He calls us tenderly. When I think about Joseph's interaction with God, it was always in a dream. There was a peace. There was a calmness in Joseph so God could speak to him. This morning we've seen his obedience. We've seen his faithfulness. We've seen his trust in God. This morning, what does your obedience look like? What does your trust look like? This morning, I don't know how your walk in 2023 has been with God. But you can change that going into 2024. But in order for us to be in the safest place, we have to be in the center of God's will. Because it's in the center of God's will we hear him speak to us. We hear him speak to us softly. We hear him speak to us tenderly. Because it's in those moments we can block out the noise and block out the stress. This morning, are you listening to God's voice? This morning, are you trusting God like Joseph did? I remind you today that if you don't know who Jesus Christ is, you can't be obedient to God. If you don't know who Jesus Christ is as Lord and Savior, you can't trust Him to talk to you. Some this morning may need to make a decision to accept that freedom of salvation. This morning, there may be some who are here. You know who God is, but you're outside of his will. You're trying to do things on your own, knowing that God is still with you, that God is still in charge, that God is still in control, but you're trying to do things on your own, apart from him. This morning, you can pray where you are. You can come to this altar. I will pray with you to help you 
understand what it means to be back in the center of God's will. This morning there may be some that need to become part of this church family that's being obedient to God's call in your life. This morning there may be some also who God is calling you to serve in this church. Whatever the case, in the moment I'm going to pray, we're going to stand and sing this familiar hymn. As we sing through the hymn, don't just sing words. Think about what you're singing and why you're singing. The chorus says, come home. Come home. It took a while, but Joseph finally got to hear those words for God to say to him and his family, come home. This morning, you can do that as well. Father, as we move into a time of response, Father, in this time of invitation, my prayer is you would speak to the hearts of individuals. That, Father, you would speak softly, that you would speak tenderly, but, Father, you would speak clearly. And we're going to give you the glory in all things. We praise your Son's name. Amen. Let's all speak.